Sometimes life is difficult and you just need a hand to lift you up. The Bible is full of those helping hands, but how do you access them? How do you apply them? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Wilkie Collins wrote in a novel in 1859, Any woman who is sure of her own wits is a match at any time for a man who is not sure of his own temper. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, we thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts by way of email, messaging us at ChristianQuestions.com, Facebook, and our website chat board. So, Jonathan, what's our topic for today? Well, Rick, our question is, is this the moment you were created for? Inspiration from the story of Queen Esther. Our theme text is found in Esther chapter 4, verse 14. If you keep quiet at a time like this, God will deliver the Jews from some other source, but you and your relatives will die. What's more, who can say, but that God has brought you into the palace for just such a time as this? So again, the question, is this the moment you were created for? That is a very dramatic question. On March 20th this year, Jewish people will celebrate the annual festival of Purim. This festival commemorates the defeat of Haman's plot to massacre the Jews as recorded in the book of Esther. This book reads like a movie script. We have a beautiful, courageous heroine that was way outside of her comfort zone. That's Esther. A fearless hero, that's Mordecai, and of course, the dastardly villain, that's Haman. It's a story of faith, bravery, suspense, betrayal, and even palace intrigue. We read about a forgotten good deed, a dazzling reward, the perfect timing from God, and a just punishment for the evildoer, setting up a satisfying ending. For us today, the lessons of Esther should give us comfort that God is in control of history and what might seem unanswerable now will make sense in God's timing and in God's way. So again, the question, is this the moment you were created for? Inspiration from the story of Queen Esther. So Jonathan, today we tell a story. And coming up in today's podcast, the world needs more heroes, real true heroes who, heroes who stand against the tide and put their lives on the line for a higher cause. The Old Testament's Queen Esther was such a hero. In segments two and three of our podcast, we're going to uncover how she faced, was faced with a challenge that was so great, she basically said, eh, get someone else, and then dug down to find the strength to put herself on the line. You know, it's one thing to commit yourself to what may, may seem impossible and another thing altogether to actually step out Put your life on the line and do it. In segments four and five, we're going to see what Esther did, the incredible care and planning it took, and how she saved a people as a result. But first, how did Esther become a queen in a country that she was not a part of anyway? That is coming up right now. So Jonathan, as we begin, let's go right to a soundbite to set the context, and then we've got a couple of special guests with us that we'll introduce right after that soundbite. This is from The Bible Project. 
uh, and it's about the book of Esther. And this is a wonderful, wonderful explanation to give us the background as we delve into this amazing story. The book of Esther, it's one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible. The story is set over 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. And while some Jews did return to Jerusalem, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, many did not. And so the book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. The main characters in this story are two Jews, Mordecai and then his niece Esther. And then there's the king of Persia, who's something of a drunken pushover in this story. And then there's the Persian official Haman, the cunning villain. Now, this is a curious book in the Bible, mainly for the fact that God is never even mentioned, not once, which might strike you as kind of odd. I mean, isn't the Bible about God? But this is a brilliant technique by the author, who's anonymous, by the way. It's an invitation to read this story looking for God's activity, and there are signs of it everywhere. The story is full of very odd, quote, coincidences and ironic reversals, and it all forces you to see God's purpose at work, but behind the scenes. So that gives us a good way to get this whole thing started. And with us, Jonathan, we have two guests today, not one, but two. First, we have our old standby, Julie, with us. Julie, how are you? Who are you calling old? (laughs) I'm sorry. Our consistently, wonderfully prepared and wisely commented standby, Julie. How's that? Okay. Hello, Rick and Jonathan. Nice to be with you again. <laughs> and uh, Julie, you are, as just to, for the sake of folks knowing, you are the Seek Your Rewind uh, creator and manager, as well as the uh, managing several other things here at Christian Questions. We do all kinds of things over here. And one of the things I did was I was talking with my sister, Lori, about some new topics that we might have, specifically about women in the Bible. And uh, Lori suggested that we do something on Esther. And I thought, Esther, eh, I've heard that story. Eh, is that so exciting? And yet the more we dug into it, it was incredible. You won't believe some of the things we've uncovered. Well, you're going to have to believe them because we're going to tell you all about them. So Julie will be with us for the podcast. And you have your sister Lori with us for the very first time. Lori, how are you? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Okay, so Lori, you are Julie's sister. I am. I'm her little sister, her, her younger sister. Her younger sister. <laughs> and, and a little bit more about you. Who, who are I'm you? A, I'm a CQ volunteer contributor. I'm a proofreader for the CQ Rewind show notes. And I also work on the team that produces our CQ Kids animated videos. So I'll just do a plug right here. You can find them on our website and on our YouTube channel, which is ChristianQuestions slash YouTube. Okay. Uh, ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. That's just what she said. Right. Got it. Okay. <laughs> so, and, and Laura, you actually are the voice of the CQ Kids videos. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yes. That is And you do a lot of voiceovers for us during our, our regular podcasting. So, when you ask me, I'm always. It's always a privilege. And and uh, well, you're a, a wonderful storyteller, and so it's really great to have you here as we tell this incredible story. So, Jonathan, we've got. Um, so, actually, so in terms of choosing Esther, Lori, did you? Is there anything else you wanted to add in terms of that choosing that particular subject? I chose Esther because this is one of my favorite Bible stories, and I've always been inspired by her courage and fascinated by the reversals of fates of the main characters. Okay, and that's one of the things we want to watch for, is the reversal of fate. And it really is dramatic 
in this particular story. So, Jonathan, let's get started. Our guests are ready, and I'm telling you, folks, they are ready. I have never been so inundated with preparation in 20 and a half years of Christian <laughs> questions than I was in this past week. These guys are so ready and so excited about this. Jonathan, let's get started with the theme. As we tell the story, we're going to give you several treasure maps of sorts to find a particular theme we found running through the story. The first theme is banquets. There are 10 banquets in Esther in pairs of two. Watch for these because they will help advance the story. Okay, so the first treasure map thing is banquets. There's 10 of them in this story of Esther. So let's get some beef, brief, yeah, beef background, <laughs> brief background. So all these banquets make me feel, think about food. So, you know, I wanted to have some beef background <laughs> Good too. Good recovery. Yeah, well, you know, got to do something. So the, the events of Esther take place around 483 BC, 103 years after Nebuchadnezzar had taken the Jews into captivity. The empire of the Medes and Persians ruled the world under King Ahasuerus. His secular name was King Xerxes. Esther 1.1 tells us he reigned over 127 provinces stretching from Ethiopia to India. Now listen to this. This would include modern-day Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Jordan, Lebanon, and Israel, as well as sections of Egypt, Sudan, Libya, and Saudi Arabia. That's a lot of territory. He was very powerful. During this time, there was the first remnant of Jews who had returned to Judah in Israel. But... Esther and Mordecai are still in Persia. As per usual with ancient heathen kings, Xerxes was an absolute monocrat. What he said went. His word was law. The power of life and death was in his hands. He sat on a magnificent throne in a palace called Shushan. So, Rick, Shushan, also called Susa, is in western Iran and was excavated from 1884 through 1979. Archaeologists uncovered the palace foundations matching exactly as the Bible describes. This story is another example of archaeology proving the Bible. And we've got more on that in Secret Rewind, the bonus material. Lots more on that. It's just historically, morally, the story teaches us so, so much. So let's get started with the story. So, Lori, let's get us started. Chapter one of the story of Esther. Go ahead. Okay, here we go. Let's start with the first three banquets. King Xerxes hosted a six-month-long banquet for his military officers and dignitaries to show off his spoils of war and to plan the battle strategy for invading Greece in the near future. Okay, 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 okay. Wait, wait, wait. Already, you get started. I already have to interrupt you. A six-month-long banquet? It's quite a party. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I, I can't even fathom a six-month-long banquet. I can't even fathom a six-hour-long banquet, to tell you the truth. <laughs> too long. <laughs> too you know, long. Rick, one of the commentators said that we should think of this like a world's fair. You know, he had these provinces. He had exotic people and animals and foods and things from all over these countries that would come in, and these dignitaries would come, and they would visit all this, and the king would show off all this wealth so that he could show that he had the money to go ahead and invade Greece. So this big, 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 huge display for everybody in the area to see. Got it. Okay, Lori, continue. Well, Persian kings often held banquets before going to war, as Julie said, in order to show that they had the wealth to carry out the campaign. So after that was over, he held a special seven-day banquet for the palace servants and the people of the city of Shushan. 
On the last day of this seven-day banquet, the king, who was drunk, called for his wife Vashti to come to him wearing her royal crown to show off her beauty. Now, she was hosting a separate banquet of her own at the time. Okay, and Jonathan, let's go to Esther 1.12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. So she refuses, but if you notice, the Bible doesn't say why she refused, but it seems reasonable that he would request this because, and think about it, if you've got the president, usually the first lady would come out if it's a formal event like this. Commentary suggests maybe she was pregnant and didn't want to be seen like this, or maybe it she didn't want to be paraded around a bunch of drunk men, or that maybe it was the Persian way not to be shown in, in public. But either way, whatever the reason, she refused. Okay. So what happens, Lori? Mike, Lori, unmute your mic. Sorry. There you go. <laughs> when, she, when she refuses, the king becomes angry and then consults with his seven closest advisors to decide what should happen to a queen who would not obey orders. They said what she did wronged the king and even all of the princes in the province because after what Vashti did, wives would get the idea that they could refuse their husbands. So they recommended that Vashti be banished from the kingdom and a new wife chosen. And in Esther one twenty, it says, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. So apparently you can just make an edict and like respect instantly happens. So <laughs> later, the king, later the king rejects his decision. But according to the law, the word of a Persian king was irrevocable. So she could not be restored as queen. And this was very, very similar to what happened with King Darius, who made the irreversible edict that got Daniel thrown in the lion's den. Oh, okay, okay. So this is something very, very common. Yeah, okay. you, you make a law, you can't change it. Okay, so, and that and th that plays very, very deeply into this story. So now we go to chapter two. So, Lori, when we're breaking this up into chapters, you're literally going by the chapters of the book of Esther. That's how we're going to tell the story. Okay, chapter two, go ahead. So the empire searched for the most beautiful virgins to present before the king. Esther is one of them. She's a beautiful Jewess who is the cousin of Mordecai, a man who works at the palace. Now, some accounts say that she is his niece. Mordecai adopted Esther and raised her when her parents died. So we think, Rick and Jonathan, that there's about 400 women in this harem that are candidates to be this new queen. This is according to Josephus, the Jewish historian. And in Esther 2, 1 to 4, Esther's chosen to be one of them. And it's important to note the historical context of the treatment of women. The scripture says she was taken. So Esther, like the other women of her time, didn't have a choice in the matter. Okay, and Jonathan, let's just touch on Ellicott's commentary for English readers about this treatment of women. In Esther chapter 2, verse 3, the whole verse shows in how degrading an aspect Eastern women were as a whole viewed. It was reserved for Christianity to indicate the true position of women, not man's plaything, but the helpmate for him. And a lot more on that. We don't have time to cover it now. Lori, let's continue. I, I really like this next part because it shows that Esther's demeanor was special. Something besides her beauty impresses her handler, Haggai. Was it grace? Humility? Esther 2.9 reads, Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids for the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. So, Jonathan, we have another theme for our treasure map here, don't we? That's right. The theme of two 
A detailed mentioned twice, an event happens twice, or an event will occur that is parallel to another event. We will put all of these into the CQ Rewind show notes that you can find on our website, in our app, or get them every week in our newsletter. So far, the account provided two lists of the names of the king's servants and advisors and two houses for the women divided by virgins and concubines. Here comes the next two. There will be two reports that Esther concealed her identity. And, you know, Rick and Jonathan, we want to point out one more thing on our treasure map. The theme that things that are hidden will be revealed. So watch out for hidden things as we move through the story. There's a lot going on here. Jonathan, Esther 2, 10 and 12. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, but Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Now, when the turn of each young lady came to go to King Asherah's, After the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women of the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetic for women. Did you guys catch the theme of things being hidden? Esther's hiding her nationality. It's going to be dramatically revealed later. So after one year, one year of beauty treatments, the young woman would finally go in to see the king. Now, she was permitted to wear whatever she wanted as far as clothes, jewelry, makeup, whatever. When it was Esther's turn, she listened to Haggai's advice and only wore what he suggested. So she didn't load on makeup or jewelry to accentuate what she considered beautiful about herself. She knew that Haggai would know what the king liked and disliked in a woman, and she listened to what he said. So she went in pretty plain. All right. You know, and this is a really good lesson for a Christian to remember. Jonathan, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden part of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Esther showed humility and a willingness to step back and let someone else who knew better make the decisions. You know, sometimes we think we know how best to handle a situation. And instead of asking others for advice who have more experience than we do, we just plow ahead. And that's usually when things come crashing down on us. So so the king chooses Esther to be the new queen in Esther 2.17. Now, sometimes later, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, and he overhears two of the king's eunuchs plotting to assassinate the king. He reports it to Esther, who tells the king. Mordecai is never rewarded for this act, and this will become important later as a part of God's timing. Okay, so your treasure map theme for things that are hidden that will be revealed, we have a secret plot to kill the king, and Mordecai reveals it. Okay, so far, life seems pretty good for the good guys. Of course, no one ever expects it to remain that way. So far, it seems that the good guys are in the good place. Who are the bad guys, and why are they bad? You know what's great about subscribing to Christian Questions on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. You receive a push notification reminder every time a new episode is published. Plus, it's a good thing to binge listen to several episodes in a row. Really easy playlist features. And you can auto-download new episodes to your phone every week. So subscribe today. Now let's pick up the pace for tonight's topic. Even though there's a plot against the king, the two who are uh, conspiring are not the real bad guys here. Their evil is uncovered and swiftly dealt with. The real darkness in the story of Esther 
comes from a man who has great power, influence, and an ego that continually seeks to be elevated. And, you know, that sounds very stereotypical, but that's the way it is. Uh, and we will be talking about the bad guy as we move forward here. So now we're going to go into this, back to the story of Esther, chapter 3, literally the third chapter of the book of Esther. And, and Jonathan, as we go into this chapter, let's just start it with a, a different scripture to sort of set a theme for what's going we're going to be seeing. Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Every story has a villain. The king, unaware of his wickedness, appointed an evil man named Haman to be his right hand. Haman loved his high position, and especially loved it when the people bowed down to him. But day after day, Mordecai refused to bow down to him, which enraged Haman. An insatiable desire for prestige and power is destructive. And we're going to see that play out right before our eyes. Jonathan, let's go to Esther chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. And when Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him how the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. The people of Mordecai who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. I have a question. Doesn't Haman remind you of Jafar from Disney's Aladdin? <laughs> <laughs> see him as that character? Well, well you know, yeah, you got to yeah. think that a lot of those types of characters are modeled after these kinds of real-life examples. But, Laura, you said you had a question. I do. Should Mordecai have simply bowed down to Haman just to keep the peace? He must have known that he would be stirring up trouble by not doing it. Couldn't he have just outwardly bowed out of a general respect, knowing that in his heart it was just an insincere action anyway. So what did it matter? And not only that, the king had commanded that the officials do this. So wasn't Mordecai disobeying a direct order? Okay, good question. Jonathan, let's, <laughs> Jonathan let's get started. Let's take that apart a little bit. In Esther chapter 3, verse 4, the only reason Mordecai would give for disobeying the order was because he was Jewish. That presumably meant he would only bow to God. The Hebrew says, but Mordecai did not bow down or do obeisance or pay honor. That Hebrew word obeisance is supposed to be to God only, like in Psalm 95 verses 6 and 2 Chronicles 7 verse 3 and chapter 29 verse 29. To pay honor would be an expression of idolatry. So, Lori, to, to further go into the question, if he had simply bowed down just to save trouble, what mm -hmm. he would have been doing was simply bowing down in contradiction to the depth of his faith. And he couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it, it reminds us of the story of the three Hebrews under King Nebuchadnezzar, who mm -hmm. were supposed to bow down to this image, and everybody bows down, and you see these three guys standing up. And the king is enraged, but they can't because they will not put anyone before God. And Mordecai, therefore, stands as a real hero. Even though he knows he's making trouble, he's standing for something that's bigger than anything here. And what you have is the bad guy who's there ready to create trouble because of it. And he, all he needs, a guy like Haman, all he needs is opportunity. And Mordecai just really handed him 
that opportunity in a silver platter. But Mordecai did the right thing. Yes, absolutely. And that's the thing. Sometimes doing the right thing does cause trouble, but it's the right thing. And just Mm -hmm. because trouble comes from it doesn't make it any less right. So the fact that he gave being Jewish as the answer also is a hint at the ethnic war between the Amalekites and the Israelites. We'll get to more on this later. So there's a deeper part to this. Uh, that we'll see in terms of Haman's reactions and responses here. Jonathan Esther 3, 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. So Haman cast lots to determine the best day and month to carry out this plan. Now, this day was almost a year away. Okay, okay, Esther- okay. Wait, wait, wait. So wait, th- let me just get, get this straight. So he's, he's casting lots to carry out a plan. Now, what's the plan? The plan is to kill all of the Jews. Okay, so it's not just to get Mordecai. No, he's going to take it out on everybody now. Just because one man disrespects him, everybody's going down. Okay. All right. So, so folks, you see the way this mind of Haman works and how, how big this gets and how quickly it gets that big. Go ahead, Lori. Continue. So he casts the lots and the, it ends up being a year away, which gives Esther enough time to make her plea to the king, which we see as God's providence at work. You know, Haman may have thought that this was just a random way to get a date by casting the lots, but we know that God chose that date. Uh, the Persian word for lots was Purim, which is the name of the holiday celebrated by the Jews because they were delivered, not killed, on the day that Haman appointed. Okay. Well, you're getting ahead of the story, though. Yeah, <laughs> you're, yeah. you're giving the end. I did? Did I give away the end? Well, but you know what? Sometimes... They won't remember. Oh, you know what? I did give away the end. Don't get any movies with me. This is bad. This is very no, bad. No, no, but this is actually good because what you want to see is we want to see how God's plan unfolds. As things are happening. And this is a great way to see it because if you know something's going to happen down at the end, you can say, okay, how does it get there? And the way it gets there is really, really, really uh, remarkable when you see God's overruling. And it's interesting, God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther, and yet his presence is all over the book of Esther. So notice now, he doesn't tell the king uh, the cause of, Haman doesn't tell the king the cause of his request or the identity of the people. And this is interesting. Uh, Jonathan, this brings us back to another treasure map point. What is it? That's right, Rick. Things that are hidden will later be revealed. So Haman is really playing very slyly with the king as well as other things. Esther chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all the other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. All right, guys, we got we got to we got to settle in here just for a minute because this is this is enormous. He singles out all the Jews because he's disrespected by one Jewish man. So, Laura, you already told us that you nailed it ahead of time here. No other nation was as scattered and yet remained so unified as the Jewish nation, and that has been the the byline of Jewishness throughout all of history, the most scattered nation of all peoples, and yet somehow there's this this united front with them. This symbol of Jewish strength did not sit well with Haman. So he tells the king, and you know, it's almost like he's framing it, oh king, 
There is this people amongst you. Dangerous and, people. Right. Don't worry. I've got this nailed down. And they are very quietly going to be disturbing your kingdom. But I have found them out. And so he doesn't tell them who. And the king is just sort of allowing it to happen. So Haman continues now. So Jonathan, I interrupted you. Surprise. Interrupted you in <laughs> Esther chapter 3. Let's get back to verses 9 through 11. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamdatha and the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also to do with them as you please. So Haman's sly reasoning before the king is bought. And he's given the money to go get the job done. He's given the signet ring and, and, and Lori, I would assume this signet ring is a symbol of a power of some kind or authority, right? Wait, but Rick, what he's doing is he's saying, I'm going to not only take care of these people for you that are obviously no good for the kingdom, I'm going to put money in your treasury. I'm going to give you, King, 10,000 talents of silver. And presumably that is what the spoils would be. He would kill the Jews, take the spoils, and give a little bit back to the king. That's so called bribery. Yeah. <laughs> we call right. that bribery today. <laughs> yes, we do. So so the the depth of Haman's um deviousness is really really amazing. You know, you you see how deeply he goes to solidify his approach. He is so full of hatred. Crafty. He's yeah, crafty. Absolutely. Reminds me of somebody else, doesn't he? You know, the uh, Satan. Satan, that old serpent, that old serpent. Uh, that's what they call him. So the edict went out to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. Okay? It had a strong incentive program. You get to keep the possessions of any Jews you kill. So it's like a free-for-all that's set on this day that he drew lots for, Lori, that you were talking about earlier. So, you know, in, in, in the scripture in... Uh, Esther chapter 3, verses uh, 9 through 11 there. It, it talked about uh, the Agiite, the enemy of the Jews. So let's, let's backtrack about a thousand years and get, get, put some pieces together here. Um, the story of Amalek. Haman was a direct descendant of Amalek, the grandson of Jacob's brother Esau. He was an actual person who later became the leader of a clan, which became a nation of the same name, the Amalekites. Jewish tradition has it that he was raised in the tents of Esau, listening to his grandfather complain, listening to Esau complain about how Jacob stole his birthright, remember they were twins, uh, in Genesis 25. Amalek absorbed Esau's hatred of the children of Jacob, and it later became the nature of the nation of Amalek to hate the Jews. So what we're seeing here is something that has been percolating for generations. Julie, go ahead. And you know, Ricky, we talked about this briefly about Amalek on CQ episode number 1052. 1052, it was called, Is it God's Fault We Have Evil in This World? And in Exodus 17, 8 through 16, just after crossing the Red Sea, when Israel was wandering, wandering defenseless in the wilderness, the tribe of Amalek mauled and killed the oldest and the weakest who were straggling at the rear. 
So okay. we'll tell more about this in the bonus material of CQ Rewind. But a good lesson to remember for these next few se- for, for the next few seconds is complete obedience to God saves later regret because they were supposed to have killed all the the uh, the, uh, Mal- the Amalekites, and here they are a thousand years later coming back. So at this point in the story, we have to know that the Amalekites were known for its love of self and reliance on violence to prove its superiority. Their ideology was might makes right. So they insisted that God was absent in the world and everything happened by chance. Well, this, of course, is contrary to what the Jews believed and what the Book of Esther teaches. These many coincidences and reversals in the book are overruled by God. Now, Haman's called an Agagite. Agog was the name of a specific king that prophet Samuel killed. But it also refers to the title of the Amalekite kings, like how there were many pharaohs Mm -hmm. ruling in Egypt. So Haman comes from this royal line. Now, DNA-wise, we don't know who the descendants of Amalek are today, but the phrase fighting Amalek, which a lot of uh, traditional um, Jewish people use, means battling our own desires and remembering God instead of our own power. So metaphorically, we have Amalek in us, to the extent that we doubt God's overruling and think everything is random, and that what we have is because of our own efforts and our own might. So we don't want to have the Amalek spirit in us. So there is not only a very personal lesson in this little detail of the story of Esther, and again, this little detail is how Haman works his way into literally plotting a day of destruction of all of the Jews in the kingdom. And this little detail is because of generations of animosity. And when you go back, you're right, you see the Amalekites as enemies of Israel in many, many ways along the way. And King Saul was literally commanded to destroy them all, and he didn't. And because he didn't, Haman lives today to now again try to destroy the uh, um, the the Jewish nation. So, you know, complete obedience to God saves later regret. <laughs> you know, you said that earlier, Julie. That is a powerful, powerful statement that helps us to see the necessity of putting God first. And and Lori, I'm reminded of we were talking about just for a moment um, the why Mordecai didn't bow down. It was for complete obedience to God. Mm. So it's the same thing. And he's showing us how to be completely obedient, no matter what the consequences. So even before we get into Esther's part of the story, the kinds of lessons that we're getting here are really, really enormous. You know, and this really makes you think that in every drama in life, there's bound to be all kinds of sad history. Haman's evil comes from a generationally fed disdain for God's people. Where does this leave Esther? We have a simple yet powerful request for you. Can you think of someone who'd enjoy listening to this podcast? Send them a text message right now. Tell them to check out our Christian Questions podcast. That's one of the great ways to spread the word. Thank you for sharing our weekly conversation with every single person you know. Well, who you want to tell is still up to you. Thanks for texting and listening. Let's go back to Rick and Jonathan as we take a closer look at our topic. You know, we're always noticing how evil begets evil, and it's the same with prejudice. The subtlety with which a prejudice can be planted into a heart and mind is a fearful thing, and the end results of these things are never good. 
Unfortunately, God's providence was to protect his people, and as we shall see, he did it in a powerful, powerful way. So as we continue now with the story of Esther, we've got some of the, the, the plot, some of the, the groundwork laid, and now the part where Esther really comes into play is going to start to grow. Uh, Jonathan, though, before we get uh, too far, let's go back to the idea, that the treasure map. What else do you have in terms of themes? Well, Rick, we have another theme to watch for on our treasure map, the reversal of destiny through a sudden and unexpected turn of events. In literature, this is called peripety. The Jews seem destined to be destroyed, but instead are saved. See, so Laura, you're not the only one who's, who's telling the end of the story before we get there. <laughs> we all ruined it. No. Yeah. Well, but you know what? It's important because you want to look for it because this is the kind of story where to be surprised in exactly how it happens, that'll come. But to know that it happens, if you are tracing you to see how it happens, you say, wow, that's God's providence. Wow, that's courage. Wow, that's heroism. So let's go further now. Let's get back to the story, literally chapter four of the story, which is chapter four of the book of Esther. Lori, go ahead. Okay, so Mordecai is in mourning because he understands that the Jewish people are in desperate need of deliverance and they're all fasting. So he sends along a copy of the edict to Esther in the hopes that she will go to the king and plead on behalf of their people. But Esther sends a message back to Mordecai. Okay, and that's in Esther 4, 11, uh, and 13. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that from any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. Okay, so let, this is a really important transitional part of the story. Esther's heard the warning, but she's not yet ready to act. See, fear for one's life is a really big obstacle. And she says very plainly, I haven't been summoned before the king, and if I go before him without being summoned, that's the end of me. It would it'd be so easy because that's the way the laws worked. And, Lori, you touched on that earlier. Uh, Jonathan, let's get back to verse 13 and 14 of Esther 4. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than us. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. Now, this is actually a veiled reference to God's protection and his providence. Deliverance will arise to the Jews from another place. Mordecai is saying, the Jews are God's chosen people. They're going to be delivered somehow. It can be through you, or it can be through somebody else, somewhere else along the line. And, okay, Jonathan, finish up, finish up the text. And you and your father's house will perish and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. And, you know, we read the theme scripture from a different translation, and basically it says, you know, who knows that, you know, God hasn't been brought you into the palace for such a time as this. Is this the moment you were created for? That's kind of what we're getting to here. That's the question that Mordecai is posing to Esther. 
So we've got to really delve into this this little piece right here. Uh, let's get to a little bit of commentary on this pivotal theme phrase. And this is uh, Julie, if you would, from Christianity Today. Just a few a few lines on this. Yeah. So what so what I wanted to do was find um, something that would bring this story up to date. You know, a lot of people say that the story of Esther, oh, it's outdated, and I'm never going to find myself in a harem with 399 other women competing for the affection of a king, and I'm not going to be saving all of my people. So how would this apply to us today? And I found that there's a there's a woman by the name of Larissa Boyce, and she's a Messianic Jew, and she was an elite gymnast under Larry Nasser. She was one of the, I don't, for those of us who um, live here in the United States, this was a very big deal. The uh, American gymnasts were being sexually abused for decades by a man named Larry Nasser, who's now in prison. And Larissa had a choice to either stand up and testify or keep this horribly mortifying, embarrassing thing quiet. And she looked to the biblical account, she said, of Queen Esther to inspire her to stand against her enemy. And one of her sisters reminded her of Esther's courage and said to her, and who knows, but that you might have come to your position for such a time like this. And Larissa heard these words as a direct message. And that is what gave her the courage. And she said that I felt if my story could help at least one other person, it would be worth it. And she went on to be one of the star witnesses in the testimony that went ahead and put him into prison for the rest of his life many times over. So the story of the queen inspires people today and hopefully will inspire all of us. And, and that's an impo- such an important point. The story of Esther, in principle, is something that you can take into any circumstance in your life where there is hardship and there's injustice and it needs somebody to stand up. And we, the way we see Esther learn how to stand up, she is not naturally bent towards standing, but she learns how to do that. That and, is the inspiration. Rick, do you know what? They think that she is somewhere between the ages of maybe 15 to 18 at this time. That's amazing. This is a very young girl. You know, and and that's kind of the same age uh, as Joseph when he was taken captive, same age approximately as David when he uh, was to, to face Goliath. So you have these young people and this young woman, and especially a young woman in those days in a foreign country being in a position and having to do what she was going to do. That takes an incredible, incredible amount of guts. Just, and, and look what happens when you stand up. Vashti, you get banished. Yeah, that's true. She's playing a real tightrope here because if she goes ahead and does Me Too movement, we're in a lot of trouble because our little heroine is going to be gone. Right, right. And she knows that because she knows why she became queen because Vashti was banished because she didn't do what the king said. So this is, you know, you you have the drama unfolding in a huge, huge way. Jonathan, let's go back to Esther 4, 15 and 16. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. And, you know, there's a lot of things here that we want to, to, to touch on. That last phrase we're going to keep coming back to. She says, if I perish, I perish. So in other words, she's come to a point where she realizes the, the gravity of what she's facing and said, look, 
I'm going to put my life on the line. And if I die, so be it. I have to try. And that, my friends, is the kind of courage that the story of Esther is about. Jonathan, we have several what we're going to call lessons from a queen that we want to just kind of throw into the mix as we go through the story. What's the first one? The things we fear the most often turn out to be our greatest blessings. Esther was afraid. She was deeply afraid of what could happen, and it turned out that as she faced her fear, it became one of her greatest blessings. Lori, so I have a I have a question if I yeah. could just jump in. Yeah. And it's about fasting. So why does God care whether or not Esther and the people eat? What what did this accomplish? And how important is fasting for us today? Is is this something that we as Christians should be doing before making important decisions? All right, you know, that that's a good question. And just very quickly, you know, the the idea of fasting, especially in Jewish tradition, um, is 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 an idea of putting yourself in a position where all you're focusing on is godliness. And so it is a measure to take everything else out of your mind. And at the beginning you're hungry, and then afterwards you're not as hungry. But it, the idea is to focus on God. So fasting was showing God your focus. I, I uh, uh, Julie, you had a couple of... Uh, comments here on, on well you know the jews today fast before this holiday of purim in commemoration and Lori and i were blessed to be on a trip to israel during the two days of purim and we saw little kids they're dressed up in these elaborate costumes it's similar to like an american halloween but this fasting is really important here in in this in this story because number one it's one of those places where god is here in the book hidden because as you were alluding to the jews would fast and pray. And so it's it goes without saying that they were also praying to God. And fasting is really in stark contrast to all the feasting going on. Remember, we said to watch out for those banquets. We've got 10 banquets that are going on. And then in the middle of it comes these fasts. Right. And it's certainly not to Esther's advantage to see the king after not eating for three days. So there's a lot of faith here. She would have been, as Lori likes to call me, hangry. <laughs> I do get hangry, and I've never seen you fast. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Maybe a bit pale or weak, but she fasts anyway. So did you check your treasure map? Because there were two fasts in the story. So fast number one, we've got this national collective fasting when the people found out about Haman's plot to kill them all. But Esther didn't participate in this because she was blissfully in the palace without a clue about the chaos that was going on. Okay, and we can see that in Esther 4, 1 to 3. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting, weeping and wailing, and many laid on sackcloth and ashes. And here's how clueless Esther was. She sees him out there in this sackcloth wailing, and she goes to one of her um, to her assistants and says, here, here's some new clothes for him. I don't know what's <laughs> going on out there, but give him these new clothes so that he feels better. You know, that's how she wasn't understanding what was happening. The country was in mourning. So finally, you get to Esther 4, 15 and 16, Finally, after that discussion with Mordecai, she declares her own fast. This second fast is a huge moment of transformation. And this is another one of the reversals for our treasure map. No longer would she remain separate from her people. Until this moment, 
what was taking place outside the palace stayed outside the palace. But now she brought it in her chamber and had all her attendants fast. So if she was going to perish, it would be with her people, for her people, and not separately. But this fast was more than just a show of solidarity. In this moment, she chose to take on the burdens of her people. Her life was hanging in the balance and her salvation would be that of her people's. So this time of fast, to answer Lori's question, would be to focus on God's mercy. And so I also want to mention, I wrote down episode uh, number 826, Why Focus on Fasting and Prayer. Uh, Rick and Jonathan, you went into it in much more depth. Um, So the Jewish people fast for three more days. And when they hear about this second fast, Esther's fast, it transforms their mourning because now they know that they've got hope. Somebody in the palace might be a deliverer. So the decree goes out for the murder of them, but this seed of redemption gets planted. So there's hope. Okay, so, you know, there, there's a lot happening here because time has gone on. And remember, uh, Laura, you said that, that uh, Haman had drawn the lots and it was like a year later. So this is all during this process of time and the unfolding. And now you're getting closer. And, and, you, and, and what the people see is the queen is with us. Now, Jonathan, you asked an interesting question before, you know, the podcast about, well, wait, how can, how can, you know, the king not know that Esther is fasting? Exactly. And, and, you know, it's a good question. But in those days, in that culture, the king only saw the queen when he called for her. And there were times where he didn't see her a month at a time. So she just lived in a completely separate environment from, from her. And and so she is able to be this rallying cry for these people who are, are, are getting ready uh, to be exterminated. And, and apparently they were not able to fight back because the law said, you, you stand there and you die because that's what the king decreed. And in those days, what the king said, the king did. Jonathan, a lesson, one of the lessons from a queen. Don't give up hope. We belong to the God of hope. And so in the face of imminent death, they had hope. Romans fifteen thirteen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hope delivers us. It's not the thing that delivers us, but it is the mindset that puts us in a position to recognize whatever our deliverance may look like. Let's go back to uh, another soundbite. What is the origin of Esther's fast? This is from alphabeta.org on Purim. Although that first fast was important, and it showed the people's total dependence on God, it didn't carry this lesson that we needed to remember. What we need to preserve and remember to this day is Esther's willingness to take a stand and put herself on the line for her people. It's very nice to get all religious during a time of need and say with full conviction, I believe that God will figure this one out. But it's something else entirely to take a risk and make myself God's partner in that moment. Esther showed us that there are times when we must choose our conscience over comfort. Times when we are called upon to fill a role that nobody else can. God may hold the power to bring salvation, but we are tasked with being his partners in it. So some very, very important points in that. The idea that uh, we partner with God when we follow his ways. Again, that gets back to Mordecai not bowing down. Again, gets back to Esther stepping up to be able to fast. Jonathan, three quick bullet points here before we try to wrap this segment up. 
God was working in Esther's life before she could realize it. I remember, as as uh, Julie or Lori said, Esther is like between 15 and 18 years old. So she's a kid, and God is working in her life. What else? And she was being prepared to be the conduit to save his nation of Israel. No pressure for a third, 14, 15, 15 16, 17, 18-year-old kid. No pressure to be the conduit of God saving a nation. What else? This called for great commitment. If I perish, I perish, but I know that I perished for the cause of God. And that is part of the incredible heroism of this very, very, very young and brave woman. I will perish if necessary for the cause of God. Go ahead, Jonathan. Sorry. Uh, I've got more on lessons from a queen. Even when it looks as though the world is in the hands of evil people, God has control and protects those that are his. So even when it looks bad... It doesn't have to be bad because God sees bigger than we do. Uh, this next quote is from the theworkingpreacher.org. Uh, at probably only 20 years old or so, she, Esther, is tasked with outmaneuvering the king's most trusted advisor and playing a central role in stopping Haman. It would have been very easy for her to say no. That is too dangerous. It's too hard. I'm too young or I'm a woman. Instead, she takes on these challenges and she sees God's leading. She sees that she is in this place for a reason. The lesson for us is that so many times we might feel like God asking, uh, why, I'm, I'm sorry, we might feel like asking God, why me? Or if only this or if that didn't happen, then XYZ would be easier. Certainly Esther would not have chosen to be an orphan and probably even married to this king, but that wasn't the path her life had gone. That wasn't the way that God had led her. So instead of complaining and questioning, instead she looked at the tasks that were laid before her and saw the amount of responsibility that was placed on her shoulders as a kid and trusted God accepting whatever his will might be in doing the next most difficult thing in front of her. And that gives us a really strong sense of the character of this very young woman. So look, when you see someone quickly grow, that first fast was sorry about that. <laughs> when you see someone quickly grow into the courageous spot of putting their life on the line, you wonder, would I? Esther came to the point of stepping out against evil. What did she do to ensure it was enough? It's not Rick and Jonathan's style to talk about themselves, so I'm going to do it. Your Christian Questions random male voice guy. Let's play Did You Know? Both your hosts have full-time day jobs and put a ton of time into this podcast as volunteers. They're also both volunteer pastors in their church, and they're longtime husbands and dads. So safe to say they're pretty busy, but they love having weekly discussions with our listeners. So make sure to reach out to us at ChristianQuestions.com with your questions or suggested topics. Now, let's take our discussion to the next level. For Esther, the guidance of Mordecai in her personal preparation of fasting and praying gave her a solid foundation on which to stand. She would now have to actually do the work necessary to save her people. That would require grace, wisdom, and a whole lot of bravery. Without any guarantees of success, this, my friends, is a woman of faith acting in faith because she believes in the people of God and the God that guides those people. This is just, it's an incredible story of this very young woman doing incredible things to, to save her people. So we go further with the story. We're on to chapter five, chapter five of the book of Esther. By God's grace, the king holds out his scepter and Esther is safe 
to come before him. Esther chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Esther, the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. So put yourself in Esther's place for this moment, okay? She's finally able to come before the king, and she knows her next words can make or break this whole thing. She hasn't done anything yet except be in position to be able to do something. Jonathan, another point, lessons from a queen. Whatever we have, whatever position we occupy of influence or power or wealth or confidence in the esteem of others is so much of a stewardship granted to us by the Lord. Esther did not come to a place of honor and privilege by accident. The Lord overruled the matter. Whatever we have is because of God. Use it as faithfully and as wisely as possible. Okay. We do not come to whatever place we come to by accident. And that's such an important thing. Julie, uh, go ahead, Julie. You know, this is really important because when we're taking Lester's, uh, Lester's, Esther's <laughs> lessons um, and trying to put them in our own life, Whatever we have, whatever position, that's the stewardship granted to us by the Lord. And that makes me think of you both, Rick and Jonathan, where you had the opportunity, you had a microphone, you had the time, you had the willingness, and you could have made a talk show on politics or on how to make cabinets or how to do anything. But instead, you've dedicated your entire lives to taking what stewardship you were given and turning it back over to bring glory to God. That's huge. And I think all of us have our proverbial microphone that we can do something within our sphere of influence to go ahead and use that for, for the privilege of, of talking about God's word. You're right. And, and, and so we all have something, and that something may not be out in front, but who cares? The fact is it's your something, that your privilege, your opportunity, your, your placement Use it for the glory of God. This is what Esther is showing us. So let's get, thank you, uh, uh, Julie, for that. So yes. the, the, the king asks Esther what her request is. So because she finally gets to come before him. He even promises up to ha- her up to half the kingdom. So he's, he really likes her, you know? Instead of getting ratchet into the decree that will kill all the Jews, she doesn't do that. She asks the king if she can prepare a banquet, another banquet for him and for Haman. Now, notice Mordecai only asked her to entreat the king. So she comes up with this idea of the banquet on her own. And that's a neat strategy, Rick. So they have the banquet. The king asks again about Esther's request. But instead of telling him, she says she wants to have a second banquet. And Haman is invited again. At the next banquet, she will finally tell the king her request. Okay, so why does Esther give two banquets. You know, we were, uh, Julie and Laura, you were telling us about two earlier. And, you know, perhaps this is a lesson in being thorough and complete. We'll see if we can develop this. Julie, go ahead. Well, you know, the Bible doesn't specifically say why there's two banquets, but from a practical standpoint, it seems that God was guiding her. Maybe she sensed that the king's mood wasn't quite right at the first one or something was just off. 
And I think it was, we'll see pretty soon that this was providential that she waited um, because the king goes off and does something really interesting. Um, but it just, it's something, I think, I think her woman's intuition told her to just hold off because this can be even more intriguing and the king will be more, um, you know, wanting to know what it is, what it is that I want. And oh. that also sent Haman's ego soaring ah, there as you well. Go. There I mean, you it's go. one thing to be invited to one banquet. Now your ego is maybe halfway up. Yeah. Now you're getting invited to a second banquet. Now your ego is, you know, up in the sky. And that means the higher you think of yourself, the, the harder you're going to fall when you, you know, get down a peg or two. So Okay. So, Lori, let, let's continue then. Yeah, on his way out of Esther's first banquet, Esther 5.9 says that Haman was happy and in high spirits. But then he sees Mordecai at the gate, who doesn't bow down to show him any respect. So Haman is filled with rage. He gets home. He brags to his wife and his friends about how wealthy he is, how many sons he has, and how the king has specifically honored him. Then he tells them there's another banquet being given tomorrow by the queen that he'll be attending. But he says he has no satisfaction in any of this as long as he has to see Mordecai sitting at the gate. His wife has an idea. Yeah, speak of women's intuition, huh? Esther's, Esther's five, Esther 5.14, Jonathan, go ahead. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends say to him, Have a gallows 50 cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. And so it was actually... Oh, no, no, Lori, go ahead. So wait, was it actually a gallows or a pole? Because NIV translation says, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. So we're going to have more in the bonus material of the Rewind show notes. But based on testimony from the Greek historian Herodotus, impalement ugh, was the typical <laughs> Persian punishment. This is not too pleasant to think about. No, yeah, but- so we think he was impaled rather than actually hung like but a, he, a but cowboy so, western. What, but what? One article that I had read said that he was impaled or would be people would be impaled. Then they would be hung up on a type of gallows for everybody to see it. All of it's just so great. I'm it's just so, so glad horrible. you brought it all up. Thanks. Bad. Thanks it's for all, all of that. Jonathan, how, let, how let, about another treasure map theme? Yeah, there you go. Let's, let's go to the <laughs> something pleasant. <laughs> but it's interesting. The reversal of destiny. The gallows Haman had built for Mordecai hung Haman. <laughs> Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, dun, well, dun, dun. well, really, and, and way more of the ending. That is the big reversal that often comes, and you know that th- that kind of reversal is actually the story of God's plan, where evil will see its final justice p- brought upon it, even though it doesn't seem possible. Let's continue moving through the story. We got to pick up the speed a little bit here. Going into chapter six of Esther, uh, Lori, go ahead, get us started with that. Okay, so that night the king can't sleep, and he orders the records of his reign to be read to him. In Esther 6-2, he hears about the account of how Mordecai saved his life. Hey, remember what God set up previously? That Mordecai saved the life of the king, but oddly enough, he wasn't rewarded back then. It was, it was years earlier, but on this exact night, 
the king remembers. And think of all the records that there might have been. But that's the one that gets read to the king to get back to sleep? That's mm-hmm. not a coincidence. That's God's perfect timing. Right. And that's it's why like, two banquets. We had to get to that second banquet. <laughs> it's like God planted a seed back in chapter 2. And now that seed has bloomed. And all the conditions are absolutely perfect for the rest of the plan to be set in motion. You know, sometimes in my life, I feel like God is playing the long game. Sometimes I don't understand why something has happened in my life until years later. And I look back and I say, oh, so that's why that happened. I can see the fruitage now. And that, that's what I referred to, Rick and Jonathan, before as a spiritual game piece. So it's like you're playing a video game and you come across this hammer that you can't do anything about on level three, but you pick it up anyway. And it turns out you needed it to break through a door on level eight. So sometimes positive and negative things happen to us that God allows because he knows that experience will be crucial in our future levels. And if we can view our experiences like the game pieces directed by God, they might be easier to bear. Now, the bonus material in this rewind, we put more about these air quote coincidences that happen in the book of Esther. So our life, we're not Amalekites. Our life, if you're a footstep follower of Jesus, is not coincidence. It is overruled by God. And we need to realize that in God's time, evil will get its just reward. Jonathan, Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It's going to happen. So here's a bit of irony for the story of Esther. It seems that Haman is there at the, at the moment to ask the king if he can kill Mordecai, but the king instead has a question for him. Esther 6, verse 6. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? See, Haman's ego is just too much. So he's thinking, the king wants to honor me, and he's asking in a veiled way. So boy, am I going to set it up so I can get the best. So what does he say? Esther 6, 7 through 9. Then Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. So Haman is setting up the way he wants to be treated. But much to Haman's humiliation, the king tells him that the intended man of honor is not Haman, it is Mordecai. And to add salt to the wound, Haman is to be the one to carry out the suggestion to make sure Mordecai gets this incredible honor. So Haman follows the king's order. He goes, but he's going to be, he's very, very upset. His wife warns him that since Mordecai is Jewish, Haman won't be able to stand against him and he will come to ruin. The eunuchs come to take him to the second banquet. So this is in between the two banquets and now the tide is really begun to turn. Now we move to chapter seven of Esther and uh, Julie, why don't you get us started? So the king once again asks Esther, we're at the second banquet now, what she wants. And he again promises her half the kingdom. And this reminded me of how Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 4, 8 to 10. He promised that if Jesus would bow down to him, Satan would give him all the world governments. 
And we can't underestimate that this might have been a real temptation for this young girl. Esther could have pushed for position and power and just let the chips fall where they may. But she valued her people and resisted taking the wrong path. She was really raised right. Yeah. And, and you know, she was raised right and she was living right. And that is what makes her such a hero is she took what she had been taught and she made it real in her life. Jonathan, another lesson from a queen. Firmly and intentionally set out priorities so when temptations come, and they will come, we choose the God-honoring path. Firmly and intentionally set your priorities. Too often our priorities are set by what happens in front of us, and then we sort of roll with it. Rather than do what Esther learned to do very quickly at a young age, and that is set the priorities based on purely what is right. Jonathan, let's go to Esther 7, 3 to 6. And folks, we're going through this story quickly because there are so many amazing lessons, and I hope that you can just absorb them as we go because these are really practical lessons for life. Esther 7, 3 to 6. Then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, Let my life be given me as a petition, and my people's as my request, for we have been sold, and I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then King Asherus asked Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who would presume to do this. Esther said, a foe and an enemy is the wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and queen. So here's a treasure map notice. Things that are hidden will be revealed. Esther reveals Haman's hidden agenda. And Esther and Mordecai's hidden identity as Jews is revealed right when it has the biggest impact. So both are revealed at precisely the same time. And the king now sees reality for the first time. And he now is very, very angry. Let's go down, Jonathan. Let's uh, continue with the reading. Esther chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. The king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now, when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. So I just got to make a comment that even what even what Haman doesn't intend as an evil act, the king sees as an evil act because now he sees Haman as evil. And so you see the whole thing completely and immediately unravel. Every part of Haman's plot seemingly has unraveled. One of the king's eunuchs tells the king that Haman set up a gallows to kill Mordecai. Okay, so now the rest of what Haman was done had done is revealed. Uh, um, and you know, and again, Mordecai is the one who would save the king from assassination. So the king roars back. Well, then hang Haman on those gallows. Talk about reversal. Talk about getting what you deserve because that's what you plan for someone else. Julie? Well, Haman is the once the most powerful man in the kingdom is now begging for his life at the feet of a Jewish teenager. Yeah. So <laughs> that's reversal. So the treasure map theme then of reversal here? 
That's that's the reversal of destiny, that once he is the most powerful, now he's the worst. And we're soon going to be elevating Haman, excuse me, Mordecai to Haman's old position. So you see that the grandiose approach that Haman had, the self-absorbed thinking and actions, all were for naught. Why? Because this teenage girl was strong enough and spiritually sound enough in her Jewish faith to stand against him and tell the king in a way that the king could hear. I mean, that this just gets, it's just, it's an amazing, amazing situation. Esther gets this far by taking counsel, using wisdom, and having courage. That's what makes a hero. Even though Haman's dark plot has been revealed, the challenges continue. How are the Jews saved from the decree? Every episode, we cover a lot of ground. Part of gathering all the information and drawing conclusions is having a thorough conversation. Thanks to all our listeners for all your feedback every week. Rick and Jonathan want to hear more comments and questions. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com, through all our social media channels, and download our app by searching Christian Questions in your app store. Now, since we have puzzle pieces everywhere, let's put those pieces together. In this part of the story that it is, I'm sorry, it is in this part of the story that the messy details of righting wrongs in the sinful world are revealed. Coming up is death and carnage, and we always look at this part and say, can't we do without that? And the answer is no. As long as sin permeates the hearts and minds of men, this type of scenario of, quote, victory will always have a bittersweet taste. Because here is where you get down to the really harsh parts of the story. We've, we've, we've talked about the characters and sort of the, the chess game, if you will, that God is overseeing. But now here is where the life and death part comes in, chapter 8 of the book of Esther. Julie? So we keep alluding to these reversals, and we've talked about how we started out with it, but now everything's going to turn. Haman thought he was getting the property of the Jews, but in Esther 8.1, Queen Esther gets his property. Hmm. Esther appoints Mordecai to be in charge of the property, and the king then takes his signet ring off, the one that was originally given to Haman to make that decree to kill all the Jews, and now it goes to Mordecai. So Esther begs the king to stop the order to kill those Jews, but instead, because remember, he can't go back against the decree, the king tells her and Mordecai, write another decree in his name and seal it with this ring. So now we've got, remember that number two, two decrees will now be in play at the exact same time. Right. So as we mentioned earlier, they couldn't just reverse the original decree, which was part of the law of the Medes and Persians. Even the king couldn't reverse it. But a clever way to get around that was to give permission for them to come up with a new decree that would offset the first without actually canceling it. So the first was to go and destroy all the Jews in the land. Pick and choose and go destroy them. That was the first decree. So how do you get around that? Well, let's look. Esther chapter 8, verse 11, and then verse 17. In them the king granted the Jews, who were in each and every city, the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. In each and every province, in each and every city, wherever the king's command and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, 
for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. So boy, what a reversal. So we had, remember, everyone was fasting and weeping and mourning, and now that sadness turned into joy in the provinces, and the people that weren't Jewish were so afraid of this new edict, they became Jewish in some cases. Reversals all over the place. And and so what, what happened here is the Jews are now allowed to assemble and defend. Let's go to chapter 9 of the story of Esther and continue this theme of reversal. Esther 9.1. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. <laughs> so the day comes and these two decrees are put into effect. The Jews defend themselves and Esther 9.6 says they killed 500 people in the fortress of Susa alone. They also killed Haman's 10 sons, but even though they were allowed to by the decree, they did not take any plunder. And this shows us that their gain, that gain and revenge wasn't their primary motive. They were just out to defend themselves and their families. Yeah, it's amazing to me that so many people died. Knowing that the Jews could defend themselves, what, what was the point of attacking them? They must have just wanted to take their property? I think that there was more than just the wanting to take their property. I think that there was that... that, that, uh, that Bloodthirsty? Well, that, oh. that, that anti-Semitic sense of get them, get mm. them. Anyway, I'm sorry, Julie, go ahead. No, no, in... in it's interesting that you said that because um, commentaries say that this is the first chapter in the Bible where um, anti-Semitism is blatant. Yeah. And, you know, Jews by name are mentioned to be killed simply because they are Jewish. Mm -hmm. And so in Esther 9, 12, the king asks Esther if she wants anything else, you know, after this first day of this killing. And she says, yes, she wants another day. Another, here's another two, a second day of killing the Jews' enemies. And that, by the way, is why Purim is a two-day-long celebration in Israel. And she wanted the bodies of Haman's ten sons hung from the gallows. So the next day, the Jews at Susa kill 300 more people, but again, taking none of the treasure and none of their other people's property. Throughout the provinces, remember these provinces, there's 100 and what, 79 provinces, 75,000 more are killed. So the following day, there's a period of rest and of course, what do we have? A feast. We have another <laughs> banquet and gladness. I got to make a comment here. Okay. Now, this is kind of difficult to think about. So many people are killed, but the flip side is a, a big celebration. Like, how, how do we reconcile that in our minds? You know, and, and that, is, that is an important question because you're talking about a lot of people being killed. And, and, you know, when you look at it, you can look at it, especially if you want to, to be after God and after the word of God, you can say, look, you know, you're rejoicing at the killing of 75,000 people, you sick, sick, sick fools. But yet here's what happened. Did those Jews start those fights? The answer is no. The decree said you can assemble to defend yourselves. And so they did. It was either we die or we kill them because that's what war is. And that's what was happening. It was an internal war. They didn't start it, but they, by God's grace, ended it. And yes, it was bloody. And the celebration is they were allowed to defend themselves and God delivered them. If the people didn't attack them, there would have been no bloodshed. And mm -hmm. remember, Lori, uh, Julie, you said earlier, some even be became Jews because they knew that this wouldn't go well. 
So you had people thinking in different ways. But I think that's where, where, where we get to on, on dealing with the bloodshed part. And, you know, it would have been the same body count. It just would have been Jewish bodies. Yeah, yeah. You know, so still the death would have happened, but because of like what you said, and it was interesting how you remember um, Haman's wife, when she, she gave advice and she says after in between that first and second banquet, she's like, yeah, don't do this. These are the Jews. God is, you know, implied that they've got something special. God is with them. And yet he did it anyway. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Lori, go ahead. You want to continue now? Yeah, so the rest of chapter 9 details the establishment of the Purim holiday, and that involved giving gifts to each other and to the poor and rejoicing from having gained relief from their enemies. And then it goes on to say how this celebration would be made into a declaration and remembered through the ages. Esther confirmed the practices of Purim, and it was written down in the records. And so then chapter 10, we end the story with, it records the greatness of Mordecai, who now is the prime minister and held in high esteem, and as a final reversal, he now has the same powers that Haman had. Only oh, he's a good guy. Right. So so the reversal is complete. And Esther, in all of this reversal, is the pivot point for everything. She's the pivot point for every reversal. Let's quickly go back to read scripture, Esther, the Bible project. Just to, to this will be our, our final um, soundbite for today, just to, to get some symmetry out of this whole picture. Now, step back. Notice how this whole story has been designed. The story was full of moments of ironic reversal, but we can now see the whole story is structured as an ironic reversal, right down to the details. So the king's splendor and feasts and decrees are mirrored by Mordecai's splendor and feasts and decrees at the end. Esther and Mordecai, they first saved the king, but now in the end, they save all of the Jews. Then you have Haman's elevation and edicts and banquet that gets reversed by Mordecai's elevation and edict and banquet. And then at the center, you have Esther and Mordecai's planning scenes, and then Esther's two banquets that act as a frame around the greatest moment of reversal in the whole story, Haman's humiliation and Mordecai's exaltation. Beautiful. So it really is an amazing story of reversal, and it's an amazing story of God's overruling to get that reversal to go into place. Jonathan, one, f uh, well, actually, there's two more lessons. Uh, lesson from a queen. Go ahead. Esther is an unlikely hero. She was orphaned, lives outside her native country, is entered into a life of servitude to the king at a young age, and yet she was used for a great work. God can work with all stories and in all circumstances. So look for his leadings instead of complaining, things look bleak. Okay. Unlikely hero. And I think that's one of the most powerful parts of this is heroism doesn't come from the most likely places. And the greatest stories of heroism are the ones of those individuals who are just going along their lives and they're challenged with something that is bigger than they are and they find a way to measure up to it. And for Esther, it was measuring up to this challenge by finding Mordecai's advice, God's grace, and her own courage. Now, in the story of Esther, um, Laurie and Julie, there are many critiques. There are, there, there are critics and much scholarly debate over the book of Esther. We want to take a couple of moments on this. More information is in the bonus material of CQ Rewind. But I, I, you, you had mentioned that you found three main issues of these critiques. What are they? 
So the first issue is anti-Semitism. And one of the strongest criticisms about the book of Esther is that because of the Jews, specifically Mordecai and Esther, over 75,000 people die, which we talked about. Mordecai, they say, could have just bowed down and this thing would have never happened. But of course, the, the flip side, had the decree went out, tens of thousands of Jews would have died. Human life was still at stake. But for those people that do not like the Jewish people, they are um, they do not like this story because the Jews win. Yeah, you know, and I, and I just have to add, you know, when you want to blame the deaths of the 75,000 people, what about blaming the bad guy who set everything up yes, to kill everybody? And what about the people? You had the decree to kill them. You didn't have to go kill them. Right. That's right. You could have right. stayed Just home. Stay, stay home, out of stay trouble. Or bake your bread. Don't <laughs> yeah. go attack someone. So Just be a nice neighbor. You know, so, so there's so much more to the story. But anti-Semitism, the idea of going after them simply because of their nationality. And that's a, that's a, big, that's a big deal here. Uh, uh, Lori, what is the second uh, issue Criticism? that you found? Yes. It was anti-feminism. Hmm. So feminist scholars resent that while she helped her Jewish heritage, she did nothing to further the cause of women and their constricting circumstances. She conforms to the patriarchal society, and instead of being a queen, she's simply the king's wife who doesn't exercise political power. Okay. And, you know, the people also say um, she was manipulative. You know, she wasn't a good female role model. She manipulated the king. She was indirect. Um, you know, she was unappealing as a female role model. Well, I thought she was brilliant. <laughs> well, that's it's all which side of the coin you look on, right? Indeed. So, um, but again, look what happened to Vashti. You know, the king was never going to allow this strong-willed woman who couldn't, you know, temper her strength with some sort of subtlety. So she had, she did what she had to do in those circumstances, and it was brilliant. Well, and I and I agree. I, I can't see that as a, as a as a critique at all because she there was only one way to get through this maze to save all of these people, and she found that one way, and and she executed it remarkably. What's but there the, were three hundred ninety nine women still left in the harem, and that was their life. But that wasn't going to change. No, right, right. She couldn't change that. Yeah. What's what's the third critique? Well, their critique is that she's unrelatable, that the circumstances are so specific to her time and place that other oppressed groups cannot use the story as a role model for emancipation, and especially women. But I, I found a good quote from AugsburgFortress.org, and it said, Esther is viewed as a symbol of powerlessness, but her low position and ultimately her ability to succeed despite it offers a positive model for those who are feeling disenfranchised. So just like we had Larissa Boyce and, and many others, I, I disagree. I feel that the story of Esther as a woman is very relatable, and I can take a lot of these lessons to my own life. And, and, I, and I would agree with you. As a man looking at it, I look at Esther and I look at her with awe because of the of the wisdom and the fact that she listened to counsel and she took it and then added the creativity needed to make it happen is a really, really wonderful thing. Jonathan, our final lesson from a queen. While we may not always understand our purpose in the big picture, we are called to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, constant in prayer from Romans twelve twelve. We are called to trust in Jesus even when we are unsure of his plans for our lives because, perhaps like Esther, the moment for which we have been created may be right before us. 
Okay, you know, and it's interesting, the idea, the moment which we've been created for. Let, let me just comment on that because, you know, it's not that we're created for a moment. I think it's not about finding your moment. I think it's about finding your mission and seizing the moment that begins the journey of that mission. And that's what Esther did. Is this the moment you were created for? Really is meaning, is this the mission on which you are walking towards? And that's what Esther shows us. Last treasure math theme, uh, Julie, and then I'm going to ask you and Lori for just your final thoughts because we're almost out of time. Well, the overridden treasure map theme, again, is that things that are hidden will be revealed and God working behind the scenes is hidden. He's evident as events just happen accidentally to occur, leading to the exposure of Haman and the redemption of the Jewish people. And God is working behind the scenes for us as well. Things don't just happen to footstep followers of Jesus. And the story of Esther is worth our study. Okay. And, you know, there's going to be a part two of the story of Esther. There's going to be a part two. In part two, we want to overlay this story onto our Christian walk. We uncovered some really deep metaphors that can help put this into a new perspective. So you definitely want to come in for part two. All right. That's coming up in a few weeks. Thank you. So, Lori, Julie, final thoughts. Step out in faith, not fear, and always trust in God's perfect timing. You know, those are simple words that say an amazingly profound uh, conclusion. They, they give us a conclusion to a story of a young woman who had to do things that were way outside of her comfort zone for the sake of others. And the, her words still echo in my mind, if I perish, I perish, and she did it anyway. Uh, so we see the story of Esther unfold, and we understand how important it is for us to grab hold of the heroism, of the humility, of the godly approach, and of the desire to save others beyond her own life. Julie and Lori, thanks so much for being with us today. It really has been a wonderful experience going through this story. And folks, listen, it really does come down to looking at your own life and saying, is this the moment that gives me the open door to the mission of my life? Take that moment the way Esther did, and maybe you're afraid, and maybe you're saying it's too much for me right now, but that doesn't mean it has to stay too much for you. Take the advice, take the scriptural commentary that's in front of you, make your life count. That's what Esther did. That's what this story is about. It's about being the hero in your life that God would have you to be. Let his providence be your guide. For Jonathan, Rick, and Julie, and Lori, Appreciate your being with us, and we'll be back again next week with another subject. But till then, it's your moment. Think about it. Folks, listen, we want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions and iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Rate us, review us. We greatly appreciate it. Next week, do you communicate or just talk? Talk to you then.